1520, a young artist um, called Hans Holbein, the younger, began painting one of his most famous works. His model was not uh, the usual aristocrat who tended to sit for him, but an unknown Jew whose drowned and decomposing body is reputed to have been fished from the River Rhine. To the casual observer, it could be mistaken for just any body, but on closer examination, as Holbein's painted it, it's clear who it is supposed to be. It's the side, the feet, and especially the hand which give that away. Hand is uh, grotesquely swollen. There's a horrible gaping puncture wound. This is the body of the dead Christ. It really is a harrowing picture to look at. Actually, the body is confined in a claustrophobic coffin. The uh, eyes of that body are open and sightless. The mouth hangs agape. The uh, wounds on the side and the hands and the feet are discoloured with green putrefaction. 300 years uh, Later, in 1867, the the, um, Russian Christian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky came upon this picture and was transfixed, according to his wife, on his agitated face there was a terrified expression. After 20 minutes she had to physically drag him away, fearing he'd have an epileptic fit. And that picture actually features in uh, Dostoevsky's book, The Idiot, the principal character in the book at one point, for instance. Prince Mishkin says, that picture, why some people might lose their faith by looking at that picture. Was Holbein then trying to undermine Christian faith by... by, uh, painting in such a way. Actually, not at all. Holbein's intention is to help us to see how miraculous the resurrection of Jesus really was. You see, standard contemporary paintings of uh, Christ's death in, in Holbein's day tended to show Jesus with a sort of beatific face, perhaps a halo still vaguely around uh, his head. When he was taken down from the cross, he was wrapped, of course, in uh, dazzling white cloth. The paintings portray Jesus as actually barely human and certainly not likely to stay in the tomb very long. It's pretty obvious. But Holbein wanted to stop us having those romantic illusions. Christ died, says the Bible. He was dead for three days. His body, like this body, was decomposing. And yet it was that body, says Holbein. This one that I'm showing you now that rose from the dead on the third day. That's what 
God did in Jesus. And that is what God promises for all his people. That is how powerful God is. That is how miraculous God's promises are. Christian faith is resurrection faith. God doesn't just step in and help us a little bit along the way to, of salvation, a way that we probably could have made more or less without out his help anyway. No, God takes people who are spiritually dead and he gives them resurrection life. Now, more than that though, that's just the first little hint of the final full promise that God gives. God promises he will take people whose bodies are dead and rotting and have been food for worms for years and he will reconstitute those bodies reconstitute the whole of his creation making it new so that those who have trusted him will live forever in resurrection life that is no small miracle that is the most enormous miracle, says Holbein. Frankly, we have to have some sympathy with, with Dostoevsky as he looks at that picture and feels his faith trembling. But you see, Holbein wanted to strengthen our faith. We who live in a world, actually, that seems to deny the reality of God's promises, that seems to be a world of decay, that seems to be a world that could never be made new, live with lives that seem to be heading just for death. Well, here's someone whose body rotted for three days, says Holbein, and he's alive. Over the last few weeks, actually, God has been teaching Abraham to have that resurrection hope. Let me just cast your mind back uh, for, for a few weeks. Remember chapter 12, when God calls Abraham to leave his own country and to dwell in the promised land. And, uh, and Abraham's faith at that point is strong enough to do it, and he does it. He leaves and he goes and lives in the, in the promised land. In, God's, in, in chapter 15, God then promises Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore, seashore. And again, we are told, Abraham believed God. But at that point, Abraham didn't have a single descendant, let alone as numerous as the stars in the sky. We're told that his wife, Sarah, was barren. Abraham and Sarah conclude that uh, God needs a helping hand. Sarah's servant becomes Abraham's concubine and Abraham fathers a child, Ishmael. But that is not God's plan. Abraham does not need to give God a helping hand. God raises the dead. He can give a barren woman a child. 
The years go by though and there is no fulfilment of that promise. Finally, Sarah is uh, an old lady. Perhaps that flame of youthful faith had died to a pretty low ember by this point. How can she possibly conceive? God appears again then in Genesis chapter, chapter 17 and uh, uh, affirms that he intends to give Sarah a child. And understandably, in, uh, in old age, they both laugh. But God is not joking. In fact, he seems to have specifically waited, waited until uh, um, childbearing for Sarah was uh, inconceivable, as, to borrow Dave's pun, um, before God finally decides to give her a child. So she conceived and finally gave birth to a son, Isaac. God always has the last laugh. Isaac means he laughs. So God has promised, you see, through Abraham's life, that when he makes promises, he keeps them. And little matters of those being impossible are nothing to him. But now in old age, does Abraham really believe that? That's what God wants to know in Genesis 22. But the test that God devises is, is one of the most pa- desperately painful tests in the whole Bible. That's what we're going to look at um, this morning. Spending most of our time looking at the, uh, uh, the faith that Abraham proved he had. Then we're going to look at the reward that God offers Abraham before finally actually taking a look, quick look at what Abraham didn't actually see. But first of all, we need to uh, look at some length in Genesis 22 at the faith that Abraham had, the faith that he had come to, the faith that he demonstrates he has come to in this chapter. The story unfolds in a series of uh, um, uh, poignant scenes. Scene one, then, in chapter uh, 22, is uh, God's call to Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. As if we were not shocked enough by what God has to say, God seems to specifically want to emphasise it. Normally, he, uh, he just um, comes straight out and he speaks to Abraham, for instance, uh, in the other chapters. But here, he he, um, the, the, the story sort of extends the introduction. God calls out to Abraham. Abraham responds. God finally gets round to what he's going to talk about. And then when he tells Abraham what he's got to do, he emphasises the cost. 
Abraham is to sacrifice his son, not only his son, his one and only son, his heir, his beloved son. This is the one who is to be killed, sacrificed, offered up to God. As we reel from that, scene two uh, appears. The departure. Abraham obeys without questioning, very promptly. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him his two servants, his son Isaac, and when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. We linger on the, on the details. He is up early in the morning, keen to be obedient. He saddles his donkey. In our mind's eye, we, we can see the picture. He calls the servants and Isaac. He uh, uh, finds a place where there is wood and cuts the wood laboriously, loading it onto the donkey before finally setting off. Supposed to linger on this picture. Scene three follows. They arrive at this mountain. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. All the extras in the story are now being stripped away. The servants are being left. The donkey is being left. Just the father and the son in their lonely drama. Scene four then describes that uh, lonely ascent. Verse six. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Atmosphere is almost unbearably heavy. Our minds are encouraged to linger on the wood that will burn the boy. The knife that will kill the boy. The fire, presumably tinder and a means of making a spark. But then, 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 then the pathos is increased even more as, uh, as the boy walking by his father asks a simple, trusting question. Verse 6. As the two of them went together, went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Another interaction there. Do you see? Like, like God has, has spoken, Abraham, yes. Here's another interaction to extend the, our, our focus on the story. Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Finally, uh, at the top of the mountain, we see the sacrifice. 
the altar is built, the wood is arranged. At some point it has become clear to Isaac that he is the sacrifice. God has not provided another. Is he willingly bound on that wood? We do not know. But now the story becomes so intense, so focused, that that actually even the movement of Abraham's hand is described. Do you see verse 10? Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And only here does the Lord step in. Again, God calls out to Abraham. But this time with repeated insistence that the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Abraham replies a third interaction. This time though, the message is not one of the sacrifice, but of kindness and deliverance. Verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy, he said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son your only son. Abraham looked up there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. What an extraordinary story, isn't it? Those of us who have have our own children perhaps can feel with, with, with deeper intensity in some ways what Abraham must have gone through. Does God want child sacrifice? Well, not at all. It cannot be. In the whole of the rest of the Bible there is a a deep detestation of such things. Even in this story, actually, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, he's referred to consistently always only as God, the most impersonal word for God that is found in the Bible. As if God half of God wants to distance himself from the reality of this request. Interestingly, as soon as God steps in to save Isaac, suddenly he becomes the Lord, which is God's God's covenant name, the name which reveals his mercy and his compassion and, and his faithfulness. The story indicates a, 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 a tension almost in the heart of God that he should ask such a thing. So why does God put Abraham through this, this terrible, excruciating ordeal? He does it, you see, to uh, prove that Abraham's faith in him is resurrection faith. His faith beyond death. God is actually testing two aspects of of, uh, Abraham's faith. First of all, he's testing, does Abraham love him more than any other thing in this world? Does he love the Lord with all his heart and mind and soul and strength? 
Or does he love his beloved son more? Jesus was just as challenging in the New Testament, wasn't he? Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. It is a test that Jesus sets before us, as well as the God of Abraham. Secondly, does Abraham trust God's promises? Or does he still think that God needs a helping hand to complete his promises? God has been quite clear, you see. Isaac is the one through whom the world will be blessed. If God is trustworthy, then Isaac is going to live whatever Abraham does to him. And there are actually indications in the text that Abraham believes that. Though he's going to sacrifice his son, his son will not die. Did you notice what he said to his servants? Stay here with the donkey while I go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Is he lying to the servants? Or actually does he have resurrection faith? The writer to the Hebrews makes it very plain. In the New Testament he tells us that uh, Abraham concluded that God could raise the dead. So Isaac was in no danger. Abraham has resurrection faith. God does not need a helping hand. God will not even be thwarted by death. It is the essence of Christian faith, you see. That we must learn to share Abraham's convictions. The Apostle Paul says, if only for this life we have hope, we are to be pitied more than all people. Christian hope is hope in a God whose promises transcend death. Now, I want to emphasise to you that that does not mean we throw our lives away and it certainly does not mean that we gratuitously simply sacrifice our children's lives. Frankly, I have heard some horrendous stories of of misguided Christian zeal in, in my time, especially in the way that parents have dealt with children basing their, their thinking partly on texts like this. I, I dare not think of the number of people in our world who are hardened against Christianity because their pe- parents were convinced that they were serving the Lord and uh, that was why they were neglecting their children. When in fact, what they were serving was their own obsessive personalities or their workaholism or they were running away from family responsibilities. Frankly, there is an awful lot of Christian neglect of children that stems from faithlessness. A lack of confidence that God will keep his promises and uh, an obsessive desire to help him along the way at the neglect of our children. The Bible is not advocating that. The Bible is absolutely clear to those of us who are our parents. 
that we have a vital, central responsibility as Christians to our children. But those children cannot become our idols. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There is a a paradoxical sense in which if our primary love is for our children rather than for God, then not only is our life not Christian in the sense that Jesus is talking about it, but our children are ruined. If we idolise our children, we actually will destroy them. Everyone has seen spoilt children. Now you see, God calls us to love children as an expression of our much greater and deeper love of him who loves them anyway far more than we do, then we will be living as Christ calls us to live. The whole Bible says very clearly, God must come before all other loves. He will not call us to sacrifice our children in the sense in which he seems to be in Genesis 22. But he does call him, us, to love him more than anything else. However, this is about much more than just affections, isn't it? This passage is uh, about our deepest hopes. Because you see, Isaac was not only his greatest love, he was, he was Abraham's greatest hope. Abraham had been trust, uh, promised that it was through Isaac that all nations would be blessed. Is he prepared to entrust the fulfilment of his deepest hope to God? Entirely. Is the young woman who knows in her heart that uh, uh, the boyfriend that she uh, has at the moment would not be the right husband for her, is she prepared to give him up? Not knowing whether she will ever find another partner. The uh, man who is bored in his job and who frankly cannot raise the enthusiasm for it. Will he obey the Apostle Paul's call to serve wholeheartedly as if if they were serving the Lord, not men? Will he believe the promise that goes with it? Because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. That reward may come in this life, but it may have to wait for eternity. Will we still serve the Lord? wholeheartedly in that boring job? The person who is mocked for their faith at work, will they follow the Apostle Paul's uh, Peter's command? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. 
Will they, will they believe the promise that goes with that? Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Will we trust that? And lead exemplary lives in the workplace? Or will we repay insult with insult? Because in the end we don't trust that God will bless us any other way. Or what about the, uh, uh, the older person who is in temp- tempted to invest now only in a quiet life and peaceful retirement and anything that will prolong their life a, a little bit more? Will they show... Their real hope is in the mercy of God who has brought us eternal life beyond the grave by still in old age obeying the Apostle Paul's words. Therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Will we live our whole lives, you see, trusting God's resurrection promises Or will we always draw back? Not really trusting the reward, the blessing that he promises us. If we cannot entrust our whole lives into God's hands, we cannot actually trust him at all. Because the only Christian hope that is worth calling that is resurrection hope. As Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now I know that is hard. I know that in our lives we find ourselves metaphorically staring at Holbein's picture and seeing the decay and thinking, how possibly could God reverse this? How possibly could I continue living for him with my whole life when uh, um, this thing that I see screams at me, you cannot trust God. But God raised that body to life. We celebrate that a week today. We can promise that there is reward and blessing and mercy beyond the grave. So we can live for that reward and blessing and in view of that mercy offer our lives as living sacrifices. We will not be disappointed. This is what Abraham had found, the faith that he had found. Just quickly, we need to note God's response to that. The reward he received. 
the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. In one sense God is offering him nothing new. He had promised him that right from the beginning. But in another sense he is, he is reaffirming it and reinforcing it. He now swears by himself. It was enough for him to have promised it in the first place. Now he promises it on oath. Abraham's promise is doubly secure as the writer to the Hebrews explains again. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. As we learn to live lives devoted to Christ, the, reward, the, the promise of reward is reinforced for us. God swears by himself we will not be disappointed. It may be that, that your whole life will actually be, um, as the Apostle Paul again says it, leading a quiet life, minding our own business, working with our hands so that our, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Maybe that actually doing that with joy and peace and contentment as to the Lord will be your part in this great plan to bless all nations. It may be that God will call you to give up something deeply precious to you we do it for Christ, there is no loss. God is no man's debtor. What he, the promises he makes, he keeps. The reward he promises, he swears on oath he will keep. One final thing, though, that we must uh, look at before we... Uh, Take bread and wine, communion, this morning. Is what Abraham didn't see. Because Christians, as they read this story, surely cannot help but see early shadows of another sacrifice. Especially, actually, when you uh, realise, as the Old Testament story goes on, that uh, this region of Moriah that uh, God sent Abraham to is the region where the city of Jerusalem was built. On one of the mountains in that region was placed the temple of God, where Israel was instructed to make daily sacrifices. Finally, uh, God provided, of course, a greater sacrifice than those. 
in the region of Moriah. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Abraham surely couldn't have foreseen that as he walked along with his uh, young son and confidently said to him, God himself will provide a sacrifice, my son. But he'd seen enough to know that God is the God who provides. God himself did not stay his hand for his own son. He could not do that because his own son had to die for our sins to pay for them so that we could be forgiven. But that dead Christ in the tomb did not stay there. He rose to eternal life. The completion of that story of a father giving his son. A story that now we benefit from. Because we can be forgiven and assured of eternal life too. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Christian faith is resurrection faith made all the more certain since God gave his own son who died and rose again.